Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Graham Dunning, an artist and musician, entirely self-taught, who works with a whole host of different materials, different sounds, different processes. I've always associated him with this wonderful tactile sense of experimentation he contributed to a compilation i did a few years back with uh i think it was like a vinyl record covered in tinfoil which he then put on a turntable and resulted in this incredibly blustery and chaotic plosive soundscape and turntables figure quite heavily in a lot of Graham's work. I mean, no, most notably in his mechanical techno, which is the primary reason that we came to do this crucial listening. Graham has just released a new mechanical techno record called Music for Climbing Walls. And if you're not familiar with the whole mechanical techno thing, check it out on YouTube now. It's so amazing to watch the objects in action and then listen to the music that's outputted because suddenly the rhythms become imbued with this precariousness, this instability, but also the momentum. So he kind of constructs these towers that all rest upon a turntable and all sort of spiral around in circles and they've got various bits and bobs which they're colliding with and, you know, connected up to samplers and microphones and all sorts and it all results in this dance music that just churns round and round it's absolutely wonderful to watch and it's fabulous to listen to as well this new album has all kinds of polyrhythmic behavior going on lots of noise and interference and you really just i mean my mind is always worrying with thoughts of how everything must have needed to be connected together it's possible not to imagine just a spaghetti of wires and wax and hands kind of frantically rushing over the surfaces to correct things or adjust things and oh it's great so you can check out music for climbing walls at ltrrecords.com that's the label it's released on or you can go to graham dunning's website at grahamdunning.com and as always you can find out more about graham dunning's picks at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening i really enjoyed graham's picks this was a really fun conversation as well graham's a top guy okay that's all from me for now you'll hear from me again in a bit but talking to graham here it is graham dunning on crucial listening Graham, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on. So, you have brought three important albums to the table, as my guests do. Um, before we get to those, I wanted to ask about a new album that you had released recently called Music for Climbing Walls, uh, which is your second me- mechanical techno release. Um, so, firstly, I understand you had the launch party last week. Yeah, that's right. That was at uh, Star Space in Hackney Wick. So, um yeah, it was a good, nice party atmosphere. It was me and uh, uh, Leah Mice and Dan Hayhurst from Sculpture were each DJing. Um, so yeah, it was good, nice. Had people on the dance floor raving to 1991 uh, breakbeat rave tracks, which is always <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and did I read something about a lot of the vinyl was sourced from bargain bins and secondhand stores? And yes. Stuff? So it's kind of. Um, Almost like an extension of how I work with the mechanical techno thing is that I'm always looking for uh, white labels and things to use in that project, and uh, I always I'll always sort of listen to them first to see if there if there's anything worth keeping before I destroy the record for the project. Right. Um, so yeah, building up quite a collection of those sorts of things, and um, 
also so yeah i've started doing this other a new radio show which is uh, called it's a mixed bag which is basically uh yeah playing all vinyl and mostly well a c- kind of combination of newer releases and uh sort of charity shop and bargain bin junk records and things um it's just really exciting kind of uh, getting home with a load of unlabeled white labels and kind of um yeah just sort of digging in and seeing if there's anything good on there so yeah it's uh it's playing a lot of those at the at the launch party yeah and that seems to kind of tie itself into like a method of music buying and music discovery that uh is obviously on the decline i suppose is is there an element of that that's sort of renewing that experience of just taking a punt yeah for, well definitely for me i mean i find that really exciting and uh you know it, it's kind of um it's less satisfying to be sort of spoon-fed kind of playlists all the time and stuff isn't it and i think hmm. uh being able to go in and yeah and, and sort of taking a chance the thrill of the kill i suppose i mean uh, it's funny i've always sort of um consumed music and other things like that really i suppose so i remember like when i was a student in Manchester buying a lot of music with my student loan but I would you know <laughs> I was much more excited about going to vinyl exchange and kind of uh picking up secondhand CDs and and you know if you if you're paying three quid for an album of someone you've heard of but you're not sure if you're going to like or not then that's kind of more exciting than I don't know listening to the full album stream a few times and then deciding to make a decision or something totally. I don't know it, it was always just uh yeah kind of exciting they used to do um a five quid bargain bag of cds it was 50 cds for a fiver but you had no idea what they were going to be so it was all the crap that they couldn't sell otherwise but um it was just as i was starting to get into kind of sampling things so it was really exciting to do that and uh yeah kind of listen through all these rubbish sort of acid jazz albums and stuff if there's anything <laughs> worth sampling off there that generally wasn't but <laughs> still 50 cds you can't really turn your nose up can you no that's it yeah yeah <laughs> um so the album itself music for climbing walls i mean I understand you made the album over the course of a week at pra studios am i pronouncing that right uh yeah i think so yeah cool um so can you take me through how each day kind of played out as you were making the record what was your kind of process for putting it together yeah so i'd sort of um yeah i'd made a load of modified records in advance to um to using the kind of turntable machine which is how i make the music with mechanical techno so yeah that's that's where the the kind of white labels from charity shops come in so that i love I'd listened to those, seen which ones had decent bits for actually sampling on. So occasionally you'll get a track which has, um, you know, a few bars at the beginning of just a synth part or something like that. Or there might be, or you know, often with like disco records, it'll start just with a snare hit. And sometimes you can kind of isolate that by forcing the record to loop at a certain point or whatnot. So i'll have i've gone through them and kind of put aside the ones that might be good for actually sampling directly then there's another load which are ones which i kind of like the overall sound of the tracks on the record but i can't really isolate any of the parts so those ones have sort of sticker labels on uh or stickers obscuring part of the record but allowing part of it to play so that uh it might be that there's just 90 degrees that's not covered um, so when you play that you get a kind of loop and it gives you a sort of sometimes randomly selected sample of the track um, which I can kind of use as a component of one of the new recordings and then the rest of the modified records would be uh, ones which I didn't like the sound on and they weren't worth sampling but I use it just as a disc really a black disc, uh, stick some white stickers on it uh, in different patterns for different rhythms and I can use those to trigger uh, different synths with an optical reflection sensor that I have that I use. Um, so I've got all the modified records there uh, and basically for for each track on the album I'll build the machine in a different way and so different layers of the mechanical techno machine make sound in a different way so usually the bottom one is playing a sample uh, the second layer, I've got a second tone arm, and that will play a sample as well. 
I've got a couple of these reflection sensors so uh, they can send trigger signals to different synths so it'll either be a user without getting too kind of boring and technical about it anyway but I use <laughs> no, no. Uh, a micro brute which is a kind of mono synth ulterior micro brute which has a sequencer in it as well so you can kind of program different uh, riffs and stuff into it at Pro Studios there were a couple of other synths as well so there's a Korg micro preset which uh, doesn't have um, from what I remember I couldn't trigger it directly but I use uh, there's a, a noise gate which I can trigger with audio to allow that to kind of let some of the signal through sometimes so I used it has a really nice uh, white noise generator and filter with an LFO on it so I used that for a couple of synth sounds and stuff and then there was also at Pro Studios there was um, a Moog Mother 32 which is Moog's kind of answer to the TB303 gives you these really nice kind of squelchy acid sounds so there's loads of that on the album because <laughs> I was really getting into using that um, and then yeah, and then I'll add some rhythms and stuff with uh, a couple of different drum modules that I have. So basically, yeah, the day would pan out. I'd get into the studio. I mean, the first day was kind of setting up the speakers and stuff and and getting everything ready. But then I'll be yeah building the tower in a different way, kind of basically adding different components until I can get kind of rhythms and bass lines and samples that sort of work together. Uh, usually. Usually it's quite restrictive because uh, it's basically playing a one-bar loop most of the time. It's only got one rotation that can do uh, that can change anything. Yeah. So the rhythmical patterns tend to be on a sort of one-bar loop, but then kind of setting the sequences on the synths so that they might have different loop lengths, so they can kind of phase in and out with one another and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so setting it up, uh, getting it to sound nice, and then it all just goes into into the mixer and some effects and things. And then uh, once I've got the the sort of uh, track sounding good with all the components in playing together, I'll do like a live dub mix down, uh, just mixing it down to stereo basically. So make a few takes of each track and then just forget about it really, leave it until after it's all finished i can take it back to the studio and kind of edit the best bits out and obviously i mean we've spoken about mechanical techno before uh we did an interview around the time of the first album you put out and yeah. i remember asking whether or not you feel like you'd perfected mechanical techno at that point and you were like mm. absolutely not um yeah. I, it's great to hear you know the realization of the expansion of your Mm. approach to to using this technique um i mean what are the if there are distinct things you can call upon what are the main ways in which your relationship with mechanical techno or your understanding of it has changed in the process of doing this record compared to the last one like are there certain elements that you were like right i'm gonna really concentrate on doing more of this or or i want to try this this time i mean yeah was, was there anything in particular you can think of in that respect um, I mean the 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 process is is quite um, I guess kind of organic or you know I, I'm not I'm not the sort of person who has a, a set idea in mind as to what I want the outcome to be what I want it to sound like so this was perfect because it was um, you know I had a week in the studio and not really any pressure to even come up with anything really just had time to dedicate to doing this and seeing what happened really so yeah that that was kind of uh the perfect scenario for me just to have the time and, and the kind of space to play around with it um i guess it's quite a different process doing it live than uh doing it in the studio and and but they do kind of feed into one another so um i've played the various versions of a live set with the mechanical techno setup loads of times and over 100 live shows I think in the last few years I've been doing it so I've kind of got used to a lot of the um, tricks and the, the sort of ways that it will try and malfunction while I'm playing with it I guess right. <laughs> I've got I've got quite a muscle memory for how to adjust each of the different components to make it do what I want it to do so it's, it's weird again I, I kind of um, I never really planned to or never really thought about it of the the fact that I'm so I've been inadvertently learning how to 
play it as an instrument but I think that you just pick that up with kind of repetition and over time you know I, I sort of know what kind of uh, patterns are going to work with each other and I know you know where I need to position certain tone arms or certain triggers in order for them to work successfully so I've kind of ironed out a lot of the creases but then felt like they the creases or the kind of malfunctions and things are, are what give it its character really so part of what I was trying to do with um, experimenting in the studio with it was yeah it was as I say with the synths kind of adding longer patterns and things that would interact with each other kind of unpredictably for me anyway so that I knew you know I don't I don't actually work out what's going to happen if I have a disc which has you know five triggers per cycle and then I have a uh, sequence on the synth which is you know 17 beats long with three silences in it or something <laughs> you know I don't I don't r sit down and write it on paper as to how that's going to play out musically and where the notes are going to kind of fall in the bar or anything I just sort of play it literally play it by ear you know and, and kind of um, see what see what sounds and see what works so yeah I don't know I think I've been aware of getting better at doing it but then at the same time trying to sort of build in enough you don't know wiggle room is it wiggle room or wriggle room for Wh it to uh I'm going to say wiggle yeah. room yeah okay yeah wiggle room for it to be able to um do its own thing you know I think the machine having some agency is is what kind of makes the project different from how I would personally program music on a computer so yeah I don't know if I'm answering your question really but, yeah um, for sure yeah <laughs> yeah uh, uh, it was I mean also it, it's just great being in the studio and also the I'm trying to sort of in some ways not think too much about how it's going to work as an album or anything like that I'm just sort of spending the days just generating as much material as I can really so just um it, it ended up being quite hard work because I was kind of uh you know <laughs> trying to trying to have a quite a rigorous regime of getting in early fairly early in the morning and trying to spend all day working on it uh and making new tracks and things trying to make the most of the time but it ended up really doing my head in by the end of it and <laughs> I think by the last the last day I was really struggling to drag myself in there I think it was I just kind of overkilled it really and and it's a weird thing trying to force yourself to be creative when or trying to make it as a sort of free time to play and experiment and be creative with something but then also knowing that the time is limited and that I want it to be good and so there is you know I'm kind of putting pressure on myself at the same time yeah I mean from my side it feels like at least all of that cabin fever was worth it because I've been absolutely mm. loving the record um uh, great thanks yeah no not at all um I mean, if people want to check that out where's the best place for them to do it um so if you go to the label website so the label's L ltr records so if you go to ltrrecords.com um yeah you've got the kind of buy links and stuff um and it's also on you know spotify and all that kind of stuff as well so all the links are there basically on ltrrecords.com fab and now to your important records i mean question i like to ask from the off is about how you thought about the term important when you're putting this list together i mean was there any particular interpretation of that term or or, or any particular thoughts that drove your decision as to what qualified as important for you with these records well i mean I guess they're important because they're things that I like, you know, and I, and it's as much about the attitude, uh, as much about the attitude of how they were made as it is about what the actual music is. So I think, in that way, I mean, I, I guess they're important to me because, in some sort of way, I see a, a kind of reflection of the processes that I use in these records. So I mean, I, I was kind of thinking about specifically um, this this project of mine and how some records that have kind of been important to that project I guess really so yeah that's another way I could say it. Nice so let's 
dive into the first record uh, if you could give me the name of it and then also a little bit about why it's important to you as well yeah so i guess the first one would be uh, broken music by milan yizak and why do you think this one is is important to you so the uh i mean it it's funny because it's well, it does what it says on tin this record. It's broken music. <laughs> it's it's an album of recordings of smashed up and stuck back together and burnt and uh, drilled and otherwise destroyed um, records uh, and then played on a record player uh, to give these kind of weird uh, glitchy sound collages. And I mean. In one way, this is this album's been a really direct influence on a lot of what I've been doing over the last few years, and definitely on mechanical techno. What I like about it is that um, it really highlights the kind of um, the innate rhythm that you get from playing broken records or you know kind of modified records on a turntable. It yeah, so you've got all the ryth- the rhythmical stuff. And it, it, when I first started playing around with records. I was really unsure as to how actually some of these sounds had been made, so I didn't really know anything about the album, and I'd in fact not really even seen many of the pictures of, of Milan Nizak's broken records, so I was kind of imagining how this music might have been made, and, and I kind of really focused on the rhythmical side of it, and there's a couple of pieces where you kind of get these snippets of sound and then silence in between, and, and that's what makes the rhythm, and it's kind of... Um, almost sounds like half a turn of the record is silent and half of the turn has sound yeah and then you you also get the the quite noisy kind of pops and clicks of the which must be you know the the stylus going over the cracks in in the stuck back together records and things so yeah i I kind of when i first back in about 2008 2009 thinking about uh making what might be called sound art rather than making electronic music and kind of experimental music i'd met the first person i knew who called himself a sound artist was a guy called gary fisher who i worked with in manchester as well um and then it was another sound artist called ben gwilliam who told me about milan nizak's broken music um i was aware at the time of christian markley uh is the kind of um epitome of a sound artist i guess really and uh you know, if you search for the term sound art, then you'll come up against Christian Markley at some point. So I was kind of interested in what he was doing. And obviously he's done a lot of stuff with cut-up records and, and performing live with records and stuff. Uh, but yeah, Ben told me about Milan Nizak and, and kind of researched that. And yeah, so I, I was kind of really uh, fascinated by this album and, and the way that, yeah, it's rhythmical and noisy and has... You know, it's a, an, an early instance of sampling, really, um, very early. I mean, it was released in the late 70s, but I believe it was recorded in the late 60s. So it's kind of, um, yeah, very early for that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you explained a bit there about the kind of process that he's using to do this stuff. Because mm. I think what struck me listening to it is just how, like, metronomic the rhythm is. Mm. Like, it's it's... it's just like uh you, you know the, the the kind of like pop that you get when it's going over the skip as you say it like yeah. falls in a way which is like super almost like a straight kind of dum 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 yeah. every time like so I, I mean is that just because the I, I don't know if you know but is like the just where the needle's coming back round to like the same point each time so it's just like yeah I, i'm just uh fascinated like as to yeah. how it's so like rigid the rhythm i mean basically if you um <clears throat> it's because the motor of the record is um record player is turning at a constant rotational speed so if you've got a, a record chopped in half say or a record just with a scratch out from the center to the edge wherever you play wherever you put the stylus on that record if the motor's turning at the same speed, it will give you a regular rhythm as it goes. So yeah, I think that's it basically. That that the kind of um, it doesn't really matter what's on what 
sound is on the record it, if the crack is creating the pulse that will always hit at the same time each cycle yeah and the pop itself is so lovely like i had um kate carr on this podcast quite recently mm. and we spoke yeah. about oval um and she talked about being very attracted to the kind of what seemed to be the pitch down cd skip of mm. his stuff but um yeah the actual like sometimes it sounds like someone knocking on wood or something or like an old clock the way that it's transferring over it's really nice yeah yeah and you've done some vinyl destruction workshops i see where you've kind of made reference of the fact that um you're pulling on uh, the ideas of milan nizak um so can you take me through how those have worked when you've done those vinyl destruction workshops in the past yeah, so I mean, it's um, pretty much how it's titled. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a case of, um, I mean, when I run workshops and stuff, generally I'll try to just show people a load of ideas, give them a load of materials, and see what they come up with, really. And there's, um, and with that, I mean, I, I can uh show people some play people some sound so show people some videos of other people who do this kind of stuff there's a lot of turntablists and experimental musicians who use records to reference and kind of draw upon but yeah i mean it's a case of uh getting a load of records together um and a load of stuff and seeing what people come up with really so yeah there's a there's a nice little mini documentary about um, Christian Marclay online I think it's on YouTube and it's just called Christian Marclay mini documentary where he talks about uh, a lot of what he's done so there's a lot of ideas in there and then I'll tend to show a little video of um, Maria Chavez performing as well mm -hmm. uh, she talks about the way that she'll snap a record um, and then her kind of really interesting way of playing of playing the broken pieces and not kind of sticking them back together at all which i think is amazing um so yeah i'll sort of show people some of what people what other artists kind of do and then yeah give them the opportunity to smash some records and drill some holes and you know uh, <laughs> chop some bits in half and stuff yeah and is there ever any trepidation on behalf of the part participants i mean the reason i ask is that in in some circles at least certainly not yours but i mean there's there's perhaps a a, a uh you know preciousness about vinyl i guess particularly now there's you know obviously it's a it's a definitely a, a kind of treasured object for people again and yeah. um uh, you know i hear stories of people first getting into djing and all sorts and you know being told that it's bad to put your hand on the vinyl while it's playing mm. etc so there's kind of like a you know a very ingrained societal instinct to just leave the records alone i mean do, is that something you come up um that comes up when you're doing these workshops at all yeah it's interesting it's kind of uh that there's different attitudes and i think people who have grown up with records so people who are a bit older i'm uh, talking kind of my age and older whose parents might have had a record player at home on the which they weren't allowed to touch or they had to be very careful around when they were growing up um yeah there's uh, quite a lot of trepidation there i think it's quite interesting when I've sometimes done workshops with kind of teenagers or with younger adults who maybe didn't have a record player at home and have never actually played a record. So sometimes people are very cautious about it and they're kind of aware that you have to gently put the needle on the record and that sort of thing. But some kids, they you know all they've ever seen is some dj doing some scratching so they'll just throw the tone arm on and <laughs> scrape it along the grooves you know quite happily and make the the best sort of um you know record skip and you know sounds that you can imagine <laughs> straight away so yeah i don't know there's different attitudes but I, but I think there is that thing of um quite often people say oh no you, you know you can't can't do that to records and things or you know um people have said to me i'll kind of bring my own records along and i'll say uh well you can if you want to but, <laughs> but they might not last for the whole session you know people don't sometimes don't even realize that vinyl destruction means the records are actually going to get destroyed <laughs> and then so the drill you, comes out yeah 
Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. Different people have different attitudes. I mean, I think you usually um, when I when I explain that you know the records that I've brought along for people to destroy, they're all you know at best they're from uh, charity shop bargain bins or you know I've been lucky enough to find piles of records on the street or in bins before there was some in a big kind of um, wheelie bin outside my old house once and got maybe about 50 records out of there oh, wow. or you know there's uh, near my studio in Hackney Wick there's a record shop there is it vinyl pimpling it's called uh, and they'll do me a box of like 100 records for 30 quid or something that I can that are ones that they literally can't sell even for a pound each and I'll take those along for people to destroy so once I've kind of explained to people that these records are unwanted and that actually by destroying them and making some sound with them again you're kind of recycling them and giving them a new life rather than um, <laughs> allowing them to just well they're not even going to rot away allowing them to you know become plastic pollution in landfill or something i don't know yeah yeah oh that's nice it almost gives people like a an ethical justification if they need it that it's okay to smash yeah. it up wow and, and i think it's kind of um it's literally recycling in that you're you know yes it, you're destroying something but you're making something new out of it as well but it's you're kind of recycling the sound which is on it as well because a lot of the time it's stuff that you know i mean may, maybe it would come back around again in another 10 or 20 years or something but stuff that's so deeply unfashionable that no one wants it at all <laughs> even at a uh, at a bargain <laughs> price, you know, or stuff that, yeah, it's just yes. got forgotten about, really. So let's go to your your second record now, Graham. Um, if you give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Um, yeah, so if we go chronologically, the next one is um, from a guy called Gerald and it's a compilation of early his early sort of bedroom recordings called uh, Attic Attack, 1986 to 1988. And, yeah, just, I just really like the way it sounds, basically. I mean, it's... Uh, it it really sounds rough and ready you know you, it sounds like it's recorded to tape or to four track or something i mean it sounds like it's recorded in someone's bedroom um and it's just very uh you know basic kind of setup with a drum machine or two and a 303 and uh it's very raw very it feels kind of improvised and it feels like they are you know there's some couple of really long tracks on there. there's one that's about 17 minutes long i think which is really nice kind of squelchy acid quite minimal um so yeah i, re I really like the the kind of rawness of it and that kind of early acid sound and i, I mean i also like just the sort of quality of the recording the way it's recorded to tape and you, there's a couple of points where it sounds like on playback the tape is getting quite kind of mangled up and and not really playing back properly and it, it gives <laughs> you this extra layer of sort of um texture and hiss and things that makes it kind of really rich sounding and yeah yeah i really like this album and that interest in the kind of acid sound i mean do you have any idea as to where that originates from for you like w w when did that become interesting to you um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it's funny because the sort of, I guess with with dance music, those sort of classic drum machines and synths are often present. You know, I mean, I, I'm not old enough to have been around raving in the late eighties, early nineties to Acid House, but I, re I remember there's a I think a Fat Boy Slim tune called Everybody Needs a Three O Three. And that was 
out just as I was starting to listen to dance music so in the late 90s and I was thinking what what's that then what's he on about a 303 and it took a while to sort of realize what that was uh and I mean I don't I'm not saying I particularly like that track but it's just an, an instance of it's a synth that's kind of legendary in the same way that certain drums are legendary and stuff as well um and yeah it's been present throughout a lot of kind of dance music yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just a, a great sound. and I mean, I, I also I really like the kind of story of it, of how it sort of launched a whole genre of music kind of by accident because basically people were starting to use uh, drum machines and things to make music with. And, um, you know, the 303, it was never designed for making acid with. It was designed for songwriters who... Uh, wanted to sort of um, rough out a, a sort of new idea for a track to be able to program a bass line and not have to pay a session bassist to come and record it wow. just for the demo version. Um, so the the drum machines, you know, it was like kind of when you, you get a, a Hammond organ and it's got a thing that can play rhythms in it or whatever or a Farfisa organ or something. You know, it's like get your drum machine, get your TB303 bass line, and then you can do your singer-songwriter thing over the top of it before you go in and get a band to record it. So it's kind of meant to emulate a bass guitar, but then it also has this really wild resonant filter on it, uh, which means you can get these kind of strange squelching noises out of it as well. So yeah, I, I really like this the story of the genre kind of coming out of um, the fact that, you know, for whatever reason, this, this bass line emulator has got a wild resonant filter on it. And <laughs> um, what's cool about that as well, I guess, is the fact that it's designed for that sort of private circumstance of someone being very self-sufficient and just making mm. the music for their own benefit before it then goes on to become a shape that they'd like to share with other people. Uh, and then it's also become the basis of this like incredibly social music uh, mm. that brings you know a lot of people into a room. I mean, it's interesting you pick this release uh, as something which is kind of very distinctly a bedroom recording, which yeah. again is sort of reversing that process so that suddenly it's holed up in the room of one person again. I mean, mm. uh, I've seen you talk about the fact that you are a fan of kind of bedroom producers as a you know as a as a notion i mean is there something about the fact that it's kind of a bedroom producer but also creating something which has like an inherent social energy to it as well which is kind of interesting in itself yeah absolutely i mean i mean uh yeah but i guess well yeah i mean i could just <laughs> agree with you really i mean i'm not sure what else to say uh yeah uh, i think that is really interesting i mean uh, like and that way of just sort of um yeah just sort of tinkering away on your own and getting excited about the thing that you're recording and writing and then yeah i guess you sort of um i mean you've got one part of your mind always on how people will receive something i suppose when you're kind of making music like that like it's nice being in the studio and making stuff on your own I mean uh, and also uh, it is I mean usually when I'm recording I'll be wearing headphones or at least be kind of checking the sound on headphones at the the pra studios I had some nice speakers there as well but it was you know it was just me in the studio so yeah you you kind of know if you're like nodding your head and dancing along to the track then it's it's hopefully going to work for other people as well yeah and I think yeah you can sort of imagine uh, a guy called Gerald in his attic, you know, kind of uh, raving to himself with his headphones on and his tape player <laughs> and his 303 or something. <laughs> Thinking of, I guess, the potential of, of then playing it to other people and letting other people hear it. Yeah. Although there are some tracks on here that I listened to and I was like, this is eerie. This definitely sounds like someone who's holed up and, um, you know, maybe the lighting the room's a bit shit and dingy and it's kind of... Yeah gone to some dark places i mean there's a track that actually when i was listening i kind of perked up i think it's called acid house experience and it's got this really sinister kind of echoing voice which is going through it mm. gosh 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, th- I think, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's definitely not kind of uh, euphoric. It's it, no. is, it has got a very sort of dingy, kind of claustrophobic feel to it, I think. Let's go to your final record now, Graham. Uh, if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Yeah, this is a more recent album from Helena Cell called If I Can't Handle Me at My Best, You Don't Deserve You at Your Worst, which came out on uh, Night School Records. Um, yeah, again, it's a very sort of lo-fi um it's almost like a, a newly updated version of the same kind of uh, album, really, but kind of deliberately recorded in a very lo-fi way um, to the extent where you kind of sometimes almost have to listen through the noise to pick out what the actual music is at, at points, which I really like. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's just kind of really rich and, and lots of kind of textures there and stuff. And really interesting sort of drum machine programming and things as well and it, it's got this real sort of uh, wonky kind of hand programmed you know hand played kind of feel to it and stuff it's kind of dance music but it's uh, again it, I guess it sounds quite introverted as well and kind of um, very kind of bedroom uh, recorded yeah do you remember how you first came across the record um, I actually don't. I mean, a lot of uh, newer stuff that I come across tends to be through people sharing stuff on social media, on Twitter and things like that, and then going and checking it out through uh, the Bandcamp page that it's been shared on, so I guess it's through through there. Yeah, not not quite sure how I first heard about it. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the, the release has this like definite texture to it uh, and in fact I mean that seems to be something that's recurrent in all the releases that you've picked here is that there's like um, uh, a mediation that's taking place which is making itself very known on the record it's sort of you know the the, the noise is sticking to the sides as the music's trying to worm its way through um, mm. why is that do you have any idea why that kind of idea of the medium impressing itself upon the music is is interesting to you mm, I'm not sure why it's interesting to me really I mean I, I do like it a lot and I, I'm, I'm always drawn to those sorts of things always drawn to you know I mean I really like the sort of community of kind of sharing things on tape and things and I mean and like I, I like the I think as as a listener, just to anything, you know, just listening to the world around you, listening to a conversation when you're in a restaurant or something, part of that process is about focusing on uh, what the part that you want to listen to. And part of that also includes um, kind of shutting out the part that you don't want to listen to. So if you're in a pub having a chat with someone, you're... Uh, listening to the person who's speaking to you but you're also ignoring everyone else's conversation and that's kind of an unconscious thing to do that and I think you know in kind of music generally any room that you're listening to the music in has some other sounds happening Um, if you're listening on headphones uh, you might still be able to hear the kind of traffic noise going past or, or whatever it might be and so I think I kind of like music which sort of brings the un- unwanted sound into it as a element of the composition, I think is a uh, just something I find quite satisfying, really. And in a way, it makes it kind of more honest that you're not... Uh, or that you're acknowledging that there's a lot of what you're kind of excluding. And I, and I think it sort of gives you as a listener the option to choose which of the layers you're going to focus on. Mm. Um, and 
you know, yeah, I, don't, I, I think in, in some ways it just sort of gives it more depth, you know, to have a lot more kind of background noise as part of the composition. There's um, an essay uh, which is kind of about something else um, by Drew Hemant. Um, it's about uh, it's about um, kind of popular electronic music in a book called Dillers of Music that I was reading, uh, well, been reading for the last couple of years. But it, he talks in that about um, the Edison defect. So when um, the Edison phonograph came out and um, they were people were recording the human voice onto wax cylinders so you could play back a human voice for the first time people used to call this uh weird sort of uncanny feeling that edison effect um the fact that you know it, it sounded strange and people were uncomfortable about hearing someone's voice coming back uh like it developed on into the word phony so if you uh like i'd never thought about this before but the word phony comes from the fact that it was strange talking to someone oh, on the telephone God. and it sounds a bit phony because it's it sound it's a, this sort of disembodied voice or whatever what? so i think that's kind of connected to the same sort of thing so drew hammond then talks about the edison defect which is um his kind of way of explaining the noise that the machine itself sound uh, makes so if you think when you're first recording making a recording that he says that there's three sounds that are present in the playback uh, the first one is you know the sound that you wanted to record so the sound of the uh, singer in the room uh, the second thing is the dog barking outside the room, so the <laughs> other stuff that was happening, the other sounds that were happening that happened to go down the, not even a microphone, it would be down the cone onto the recording. But then the third sound that you get during playback is the crackle and the noise and the hiss and the sound of the material and the sound of the medium itself. Um, and that's why he calls the Edison defect. So, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I do find that um, fascinating, really. And, and uh, again, as I was saying, I, I like the idea of having lots of layers to the sound that might not immediately seem to be deliberate or might be... Yeah, they are definitely a deliberate part of the composition, but as a listener, you're sort of choosing to ignore some of it if you want to. So, yeah, I like I like things that kind of have that... Yeah, because I, I, there was a moment when I was listening to this Helena Cell record, because I understand mm. from what I read that she recorded, I don't know if it's everything or at least some of the parts, to dictaphone, cassette dictaphone, mm. which is... I, I'd literally only read that this week, so ah. I'd kind of um, it was also quite nice that it was kind of a mystery as to, uh, to me as to how this sound had come about. You know, I kind of liked how it sounded. I thought yeah it's definitely very lo-fi but perhaps it had been done more deliberately with kind of pedals and stuff but yeah i think yeah that's really interesting that, that it's some of its dictaphone yeah yeah totally because there's almost like an extra kind of shrill layer of interference that comes into mm -hmm. play but um there's a point when i was listening where i just decided quite consciously to home in on whatever wasn't the music um mm. And I mean, it's so pronounced, but you get some such like lovely undulating textures there. Like it's not even just like a constant hiss, is it? It's just something mm. which has its own uh, activity and its own sort of volition within the music, which is quite amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you have a favourite track on this record? Um, I'm not the sort of person who remembers... Um, what tracks are <laughs> or you know like I, i've yeah. got friends who I've, i mean i've got one friend who can tell you every the title year of release and <laughs> uh duration of every prince song ever recorded you know wow. I, I just don't have a encyclopedic i just don't remember things in that way i mean i really like the first one on uh side two of the record but i i mean i tend to when i'm listening i'll listen to a whole album really rather than separate tracks so I'm not really sure of the tracks or the titles really yeah. <laughs> it's fair enough i mean yeah the first one on side <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Well, Graham, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk through, I mean, firstly, Mechanical Techno, uh, and then also uh, through your three important albums. This has been fun. Great. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having us. And if people want to just, uh, if people want to keep up to speed with what you're doing, you know, Mechanical Techno and otherwise, uh, where's the best place for them to go online? Um, so, yeah, you can just go to my website, grahamdunning.com. Uh, if you go slash news, that'll tell you the most you know upcoming gigs and that sort of thing great okay well thanks once again and to everyone listening i'll see you next time bye bye cheers bye